ESPN's The Bar Post podcast. We are back with another Tilly's debrief. It was a 1-0 loss this time around to Canada. It was a Quinn goal in the 40th minute that set up the win in Christine Sinclair's last game for the national team. So the result was not what Australia wanted, but the result's probably not even the most interesting thing we need to talk about from this game. So we can't wait to crack in. Before we do, though, we want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands we're recording on today, the Wurundjeri and Gadigal people, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. For today, you've got me, Marissa Lordanik, Anna Harrington, Sam Lewis, and Angela Christian Wilkes. So, friendos, like I said, 1-0 result against Canada. Been there, done that, seen that before. It really is the least interesting part of this game. The intrigue and the interest started with the lineup because we saw wholesale change from the first game where we lost 5-0. So was anyone surprised by the changes and did you kind of see what you then expected from this kind of lineup as opposed to what we saw in the first game, if that makes sense? No, we weren't surprised by the lineup, were we, Sam? It, <laughs> it was exactly what we expected. Um, 10 changes, bar Mackenzie Arnold, like Tegan Michael replacing Mackenzie Arnold in the same lineup as the, the game against Canada and Melbourne. Um, I think what was surprising, well, maybe not surprising because Tony had flagged that they're going to try and play more vertical, build up through the middle, um, use the flanks more. Um, and you could see they were trying to do that uh, with pretty limited success. Canada are obviously a pretty tough team to test this stuff out against. They're a very um, solid defensively. They work hard for each other. They're very disciplined and they're dangerous going the other way as well, like on the counter. Um, yeah, so they. I still thought the best chances Australia had bar the Tamiki Allop at the end came still from getting the ball out wide to a Caitlin Ford or, or to a Hayley Razzo. Um, I think probably should have scored early when Razzo got away on the break and um, couldn't quite tee up Ellie Carpenter. The, the path, the pass had got hit a little bit earlier. It would have been 1-0. Um, yeah, it was a weird game. It was a bit flat. Like once Canada, and this is what Canada, Canada got their way to an Olympic gold medal by doing this, right? Like they get a goal or they work their way through and they hold the other team out. Um, and like you listen to Steph Catley straight away. It was pretty disappointing the way Australia conceded. That doesn't have anything to do with the way you're, you're changing your style of play or what you're doing. And they all said as much, right? Like it's conceding off a set piece, second ball, um, you know, first of all, you shouldn't be letting Kanisha Buchanan get a shot away. And then um, Quinn isn't tracked in for the follow-up and it's a pretty easy header for them. So, yeah, and they just really struggled to to create anything meaningful. And it's a difficult one because it's hard to, on when you just look at the game, and we'll, we will talk about things like substitutes and all that but on the face fit. Players look tired, made me glad. A lot of them didn't play that first game. They looked weary. They lacked that bit of spark. Um and I know that December is a window because you have things like the Nations League and qualifiers and that sort of thing. European players must be absolutely knackered if they're playing like games for keeps in this window because in a friendly, um, the Tillies look very tired and I know there's travel and all that too. But yeah, just lacking that bit of spark, that bit of pizzazz. Mary Fowler tried hard early but couldn't make anything really happen. As I said, Razzo and Ford were sort of industrious and, and really tried. I thought Alana Kennedy was awesome. Um Back to her best. Like, this is one of the best I've seen her play in years. We know how many injuries she's had, issues with form, but she just looks so commanding. And I think if they do try to play 
with more build-up in possession and can get that right, she will be a real beneficiary of that. Claire Hunt was good as well on the ball. Um, defensively, she is just rock solid. She's got that great sort of closing speed. She's got that um, ability to read where where an attack is going and she makes those crucial interceptions and clearances and she's fantastic. Um, but I think we all knew that and we'd seen that for a while. But I think we really got to see the value of them as a centre-back pairing in that Kennedy can step out and she can play and when she's not just, we know she can hit those long diags, but when she's not just looking to do that, she has that real incisiveness with her passing and she's brave. Both of them are brave, but they don't mind stepping up. And that was probably the one positive that I could take from this game um, in what was otherwise a, a pretty difficult, and Sam, you said it to us before we started recording, flat, flat performance. Like, it's hard to to really get excited about. I think friend of the pod, Vince, just said there was no vibes. <laughs> not a vibes performance. You weren't vibing watching this. It was... um. Yeah, it was flat and it was, I think, a bit disappointing. I think probably because when you have that real low of the the kids in the experimental lineup copping the the five nil loss, you think, yeah, well, the big dogs are coming in. And then yeah, obviously weren't able to to come away with, with a result, which was probably a bit of a sour note to to end the year on. Yeah, I I think when it comes to the lineup, I even though, as you said, Harry, Tony flagged that he would be turning to the more experienced players for this game. And he kind of justified it questionably afterwards as well. I was still surprised that we didn't see one or two players from the first game started here. I would have really liked to have seen, say, a Claire Wheeler play alongside a Katrina Gorey or a Kyra Kunikaros. I would have loved to see a Courtney Nevin play alongside an Alana Kennedy. Like, just a couple players here or there who... You know, in the context of this window, it feels like the purpose of it was meant to be trying to find the players who are going to fill out what will hopefully be the rest of the Olympic squad, right? So what's the what's the overall point of starting the players who you know what they can do because you just saw them do it in a World Cup? You know what their bodies are capable of. You know what their combinations are capable of. I understand this whole thing about him wanting to try this new kind of style this new system of football. There's not really very many windows in order to achieve that that are left. But at the same time, like, they're exhausted and you could see it almost from the very beginning. Like, I I don't really know what the value is in that, you know, compared to giving more minutes to players who actually really need them at this level, particularly coming off that 5-0 loss. You would think that some of those players would want to come in firing in a second game, in a second opportunity to prove themselves because that first one maybe didn't allow them to show what they're capable of. And it especially didn't allow them to show what they're capable of in the context of the more senior team and the more senior players who you can imagine come Olympics, the substitutions will be drip fed into a more experienced starting 11. So like, it's, it's just a little bit baffling to me now. And I think the, the rationale doesn't really stack up for me anymore. I don't know what kind of information Tony's got access to that he hasn't been able to communicate to the rest of us, which justifies his choices to himself or to the people internally. But I feel like we need some more explanations here because it just it it doesn't it doesn't feel right. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Sam. I. I've struggled. To, I asked Tony of this in the presses yesterday as well, because um, he's he's made it pretty clear this was a pre-planned thing. He worded, as we know, he worded up pre-game, you know, pre-match presses, 
this is going to be the plan. We'll play a less ex- or experimental, for want of a better word, 11 in the first game and then, you know, effectively the big dogs in the second game, right? But I did ask about this in the post-match presser because these players did look tired. I said, well, why didn't we, why didn't, you know, you make these changes? And also, um, was there a temptation to take that option, like you're saying, Sam, because in um, like a Claire Wheeler or an Alex Chidiak or whoever, because let's, let's be honest, realistically in a tournament situation, you will be, as you say, drip feeding these players in. I don't think there's ever going to be a realistic scenario where you're going to make 11 changes. We're not going to see that first 11 ever in a competitive environment, right? Exactly. We will see a combination. And I appreciate that he said um, after the first game, um, you know, I did have the option to say playing two, maybe I, I suppose weaker 11s. We have some experience, some youth. And and he sort of queried the, you know, the benefit of that when he wants some uh, continuity with his starting players. But you do wonder, could that have been the better approach? Because for me, that seems the most realistic thing that a player won't be available, right? Like I would have loved to have seen a, an Amy Sayer get half an hour or more in that that game yesterday because realistically, the Olympic qualifiers, I think, is a better example to look at. And to be fair, I think the players were used well in those games where a Claire Wheeler is going to have to slot in. It might even be at right back it's or in the midfield or an Amy Sayer is going to need to come on and play for half an hour and we can we've seen what she's done there. Um, it it doesn't these friendlies and I, and I appreciate and he did say as much you know these are friendlies we've got to keep this in perspective and I do appreciate that but I feel like we would have got more out of seeing how these players adapt when they play with some of the senior players because that seems like a more realistic proposition to me rather than here's all yeah. the big dogs and here's all the inexperienced ones and how I you know how they're meant to show any sort of cohesion or chemistry with players that they barely play with that you know are either. Um, playing minimally for the Matildas or haven't really played at all and they're not ready yet. <clears throat> so, yeah, it was. it's hard for me to really, yeah, get, understand the two. And, yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen that mix. And as, you know, we we got a good – he did talk about I wanted to see how these players could go, you know, when you get tired and, you know, you want to try these different game scenarios. We saw that in the World Cup when the same starting eleven is rolled out time and time again and they get knackered and there's not fresh legs. They look tired. They're not able to break down attacks. We see the long balls going in. And against a team like Canada, they just gobble that up and go, thank you very much. We'll head that one away, head that one away, head that one away over and over again. Um, I think in a in a tournament – well, I'd like to think in a tournament situation you would call on the fresh legs to change things, but it hasn't necessarily been the case. Um under Tony, he doesn't like to use his bench a whole heap. Um, but yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen some little things. Whether Claire Wheeler was an obvious one, Sam, just to come in and spice up that midfield a bit, or um, even I'd love to see. I know we talk sometimes about Alex Chidiak. I'd love to see her tested as one of those false nines, playing her centrally. Or if you're going to play with possession, she is another option to test out through the midfield because she's very good at finding passes in tight spaces. And you know, the wing clearly is not. A suited position. So when you're testing out these players, there's a, there's just a few things that um are difficult. It, it just felt like a frustrating window, and it's probably just because it's the end of the year as well. The players look tired. We felt tired. The performance was um I think I used the word lethargic. Looking in my report, it just all felt very very difficult. Um and yeah, I think but the subs thing is frustrating because it it feels avoidable. It's about the way that you want to do things. And I said after the first pod. When you saw the way Canada blended youth and experience, it, it really gave you something nice to hang on to. I think if you're a Canadian fan, you'd come away from these two friendlies. I know they've had a difficult year with the 
the World Cup, obviously, but you come over and you've got to have that perspective. We've had a much better year overall because of the World Cup. But just for the end of the year, you just come away. We come away with a little bit of frustration and they come away, I think, with some, some real optimism. Yeah, the, that's it was quite reminiscent, this game of like the World Cup squad management. And I think that's a little, that's a concern I'm feeling in terms of going into the Olympics of did we learn from that? Um, because as we've discussed here, like in terms of actually there's the need for continuity, but I don't, I'm not sure if I really buy that given the stark difference between the two lineups and that kind of lack of balance. But then also, yeah, in terms of it, it during the World Cup, the lack of trust in bringing in someone like a Claire Wheeler or a Courtney Nevin to do the job in games that really do matter. And this game didn't matter and they still played 90 minutes, which doesn't like a lot of, well, most of the players bar Katrina Gorey and then Yallop who came on for her played 90 minutes. And then this was after we had been told that these players were being managed for and were having their load managed thought about a lot. And that was coming into why they didn't play in the first game. But it to me, when you also take into the fact that, into consideration that they look so tired I don't know I'm I'm just not really sure if I bought it on the the load management front but also on in terms of the yeah the purpose of the these the supposed purpose of these friendlies of finding you know those last little tweaks for the Olympics squad um yeah it was just I think overall the window as a whole has just been a bit confusing and we've we've discussed it at length in terms of like actually what purpose were these games serving and the second game in particular um what what was what were we hoping to get out of that what were we hoping to learn I don't know if we did really learn anything much because we know the quality of the players that we saw out there and maybe again it's not even like um you would be testing them to see if they're still at a particular level because like Alana Kennedy and Claire Hunt like that's a no-brainer to me in terms of someone that you would bring along to an Olympics if they're like able and they're and they're fit and ready so yeah it's a strange one um and I'm just I I'm gonna be very shat off if we get to the Olympics and then we just see a repeat of how things went down at the World Cup like I would really really hope that they're like fantastic World Cup, obviously we did so well and a lot of people will be like, well, let's not be too critical of Tony because he got us to such a fantastic result. But at the same time, I think there were very valid criticisms during the World Cup of um, how the squad was managed and the lack of trust in those fringe players. So that's, yeah. And we've got limited opportunities to see them play alongside the big dogs now. Um yeah, I don't know. Um, but it, it was uh, of the game itself. Like it was obviously stronger side on the whole. I think it was vast improvement on the first game in terms of actually being able to get near the goal and and being able to pull off some shots and some opportunities. And um, as you mentioned, Harry, like Hunt and Kennedy are just yeah, such a fantastic pair. I'm I'm really uh pleased and like buying into that more and more each time I see them play now yeah yeah I think things like it looked like Emily Van Egmond was having a difficult day out and I think she's been very good when used in that false nine generally but it felt like yesterday she was having a a tough game and we didn't see that change like I thought we would see an Amy Sayer come on I know the change was made and 
I thought when Yellop came on for Gorey, and I know they shifted Van Eglin, I thought Yellop did provide a bit of a spark and something a bit different. She obviously had that chance and really should have scored. I think she knew that as well. But I would have liked to have seen a Sayer brought on. How can she play with Mary Fowler? They would have had some young Matilda's time together. How can she integrate in? Because um, she obviously had that assist during the, um, the qualifiers as well. You saw some really nice things there. I think there was that level of frustration. I think, to be honest, the, the frustration around this window was obviously compounded by the fact that going into it there was the links for with Tony to the the Sweden men's job which is something he's had to address a couple of times leading in um he said he's committed through to qualifying for for Paris um whether that includes the the Paris Olympics I think is yet to be seen but clearly you know like people's frustration is also going to be exacerbated by the fact that you're like well where does Tony sit in all this he's, he's and you know I'm, I'm not going to doubt that he was fully committed you know through this window and um is fully committed when he's with this team but I think when people are looking at the bigger picture they go okay so is he leaning for the long haul what's going next what's going next um or what's coming next sorry and I think there's that level of, of frustration as well like you know is he going to be at the helm come Paris and obviously there'll be a range of factors involved there right like if he gets another job what does that look like you have to sort of take him at his word and then he said he's committed to seeing it through. But I think it does add another level of um, frustration when you're seeing one thing where you're talking about building up this style of play and advancing and looking forward. And at the same time, there are the links to somewhere else. It's um, And it, that is the game that all, all managers and coaches play, especially when, you know, you do well with a team. People are going to come for you. But I think um, there's that level of, yeah, for want of a better term, frustration as well. I think one more quick thing that's worth noting as well is that on the topic of trusting your subs, coming into the Olympics, the squad sizes are probably going to be smaller than what they were in Tokyo due to COVID. COVID meant that the squads were taken, I think, to 22, but the Olympics... Normally they're 18. Normally they're 18, yeah. So Paris is going to be an 18-player squad and you don't have the luxury of keeping people on the bench. If you want to run deep in the tournament, as we have seen both in Tokyo and in the World Cup, you know, you get to the pointy end of these things. And if you keep playing the same starting 11, you're going to run out of gas. And I remember, you know, pre-World Cup when Tony was talking about how statistically teams that don't have a lot of rotation in their starting 11 are the teams that go the furthest. And he cited specifically the, the Lionesses during the Euros last year. But I think we've now been through two tournaments with the Matildas where that um, theory has fallen down when it has actually started to matter in games where you actually really need to have freshness and you need to be able to trust people to come in and to do a job. So I think based on that, that's what's frustrating. Is that that bigger context for me, knowing that the Olympics is going to be a smaller squad and you are going to need all of those players in order to get as far as possible? And yet this window doesn't really feel like it was used in the interests of answering that question. Yeah. And I think there was clearly some difficulties with that. I got the impression from Tony's comments after both matches, Holly McNamara was going to be pretty heavily used. Had she been right, I get the impression Charlie Grant would have as well. I think those injuries played a role, but it doesn't take away, Sam, from what you've just said that, the lack of trust is, is worrying. Like, are we going to see Claire Wheeler turn to when games are big? She plays against big opposition every week. 
Like, it's a different situation for an Alex Chidiak, I think it's fair to say, because she's not really getting minutes at club level. Um, hopefully we see her come back to the A-League women and start ticking over. Um, he also alluded to needing more speed, the injury to McNamara, injury to Kerr, injury to Courtney Vine, obviously limited those options out wide. Um, and I think that from what he said post-match, it's pretty clear Courtney Vine is a lock for this team just because of what her explosiveness offers. Well, not necessarily a lock for the starting team, but a lock for the squad. Um, I think there's there's that. But, yeah, you, you query, like, when push comes to shove, will these players be trusted? And I think they should be. I think they've shown enough to show they can come in. And nothing else is to maximise what you get out of the other players. Mary Fowler's still so young. Like, she needs the rest. She needs the opportunity in the game time. But you need to see um, these players protected as well. Um, and, yeah... I think Angela's right. It's hard to see how it stuck, stacks up when you talk about load management, protecting players, and then you, at the same time you're talking about um, managing them through fatigue in game situations, like going through to 90 minutes. in, And then, again, it's, but these are just friendlies in December. I'm like, but if they're just friendlies in December, then if they look knackered, then make the change. Uh, it's, it's just the, the contradictions can be a bit frustrating for mine. And Yeah, I think... I think um, the thing was you could cop the first game um, to an extent as frustrating and annoying as it was that you, you didn't want to see these young players or an experimental lineup cop so many goals. But I'd hoped it would be counterbalanced by the fact that we would then see some of those players thrown in the mix with their senior counterparts. Like, would we have really cared if we'd lost 2 or 3-0 if we'd seen Amy Say get half an hour, Claire Wheeler get another half an hour with this team? And um, even... You know, if they threw in Charlie Rule, who Tony was very complimentary of after the first game in terms of what she showed as a centre-back, even just for 20 minutes, just to see how they slotted in with some of these senior players. And and when I say when when I say senior players, I mean players that are picked as starting players every week. And uh, this isn't taking away from players like Claire Polkinghorne and Tamiki Allop, who were used as, as starters in that first game because they're, they're great players, great, great servants. But they were used deliberately in that first game they they're often coming off the bench or they're you know the next option down the line it's I mean like if you're testing out a Claire Wheeler you're putting her next to Katrina Gorey or if you're testing out a Charlie Rule you're putting her next to Alana Kennedy right like it's those sorts of those sorts of moves um but yeah next time we'll see them in action will be the Olympic qualifiers so it'll be pretty interesting to see um what changes happen between between now and then I think also on that, um, giving players like a Charlie Ruler or a Sarah Hunter those minutes in another game, um, I think is a reflection of you, that you trust them and that you're like, okay, first game's behind us, let's move on. And like, I, I know that, like giving people a second chance. And I know, um, again, Tony has done that during his tenure, but I think it does come down to that that lack of trust just comes up when we got the big games and the, the the tournaments especially so um that's interesting and I suppose I I think as well like it felt a little bit like this game it, like we were keeping the starting 11 because like the first game was sacrificial and experimental and the score didn't matter but the second game it almost felt like well we want to win or we want something from this in terms of result and then that may have led to the scene players have like play 90 minutes when they necessarily shouldn't have or like 
led to subs not being used is it the all or nothing part of it is so stark it's a bit strange almost I think as well like in terms of like maths and stats and numbers there there's a lot of referencing that and and citing um not the numbers themselves but like uh you know that they're part of the decision making process but then it's like also the like vibes you know quantitative and qualitative data are important in this world and sometimes I feel like we as we saw with this game the qualitative data of players looking knackered that's a vibe that's not necessarily like quantified in numbers but just maybe like a little bit more focus on that um would be nice I say all of that as well like the the qualitative side of things Tony is obviously like a, a big he's shown that he's a big motivator and he's got the like people skills and all of that stuff which is kind of tied in with it but yeah just the side the citation of like the, the player load management and the numbers it's the numbers can't tell us everything so yeah it's I could be maybe being too mean there as a qualitative researcher but anyway I love a vibe so I respect that take um do we have any final takes on the Tillies? Because there is one final thing that we need to talk about that isn't really about the Tillies. I was just glad to see Teg and Micah get through a couple of games unscathed yeah. uh, was one other thing. Um, you could tell a couple of times where just the lack of game time came in, like a couple of times just slow off her line. But I think some really big saves, some really big moments. She's courageous. I was really glad as well that she got through that concussion assessment. All right. Not sure whether the goal should have been chalked off. although. Who knows? Because we were all in a magical, wonderful, grey dimension where no one could oh see anything. Um, <laughs> that, almost between it all, I think that just added to it as well. There's this 10, 15 minute period where you're just like, what's going on? I don't know. Is that Caitlin Ford? Maybe. Um, <laughs> credit to Romy Thompson and Grace Gill for calling their way through that when the international, because it wasn't a Channel 10 issue, it was the international fee because I saw... Um, people clowning on it in the US as well. They <laughs> just, as Tom said, it was like being in the Take On Me film clip. <laughs> like you expect a heart to pop out of somewhere. But it was, um, yeah, just I think added to the frustration <laughs> of the day. Um, and credit to Grace for coming up with a line about things not being all black and white, that there's shades of grey off the cuff. <laughs> yeah. um, that decision good. where the goal got chalked off, I was like, oh, well done. Well done, friend of the pod, Grace Gill. Um Credit to both of them for, for calling their way through that um, because it was a, a pretty difficult situation. But, yeah, anyway, credit to, to Tegan Micah for getting a couple of games under her belt. I think it was really important. Um, she's clearly the number two goalkeeper at the moment um, behind Mackenzie Arnold. And um, if they're in a position where she can um, – now she's playing more at Liverpool as well, really mount some stern competition, that's going to be a really good position um, to be in going forward. So, no, I was pretty happy to see, to see that. I have, as I said, I loved seeing – I think Alana Kennedy and Claire Hunt, it's still worth them getting as many games into them together as possible because it is a relatively new combination. When we talk about this, it's still, what, barely 10 games old or something. Um, I love that. Um, yeah, they were, the, they were the things I loved. Just and quickly to on, all the, the, on the topic oh, of broadcast. Oh, sorry, Angela, you go. I was just going to say credit to all the pub managers around the country that were 
like shitting their dacks at that moment being like is the telly broken oh and they're like I, I was at the pub and I got my iPad out to get the feet up being like oh it's just fine and I was like oh that's broken too oh never mind but yeah <laughs> while the manager at the pub was like oh what's going on like is this a me problem anyway so credit to them for for getting through it and also for letting us watch at the pub and we well you that that's a given you should just let us watch the tillies at the pub always but anyway <laughs> and on the topic of broadcasting the other thing that I um kind of riled me up a little bit was pre-game when uh there was that ceremony for Christine Sinclair Channel 10 or Paramount I don't know who controls it kept flicking back to the studio kept flicking back to the panel and had their commentary about the Matildas particularly commentary from Andy Harper over the top of a really wholesome lovely ceremony for Christine Sinclair like we didn't even really get because it kept sort of like cutting back and forth between the two things and we didn't there wasn't sort of a moment of of Tara Russian saying okay now we're going to go to the pre-match ceremony to celebrate the careers of you know Christine Sinclair and Sophie Schmidt it it was just kind of like oh this is here's the thing that's going oh but we have to come back because Andy Harper's criticizing you know Tiny Gustafsson's rotation of play and so we and like there was just this like it just felt really disrespectful to me. Like you knew that there was going to be a big thing that Canada soccer did before the game for Sinclair. That's part of being a broadcaster. You know, if there's going to be pre-match things, you know, the kickoff was scheduled for two o'clock, but it ended up going to two fifteen because there was 15 minutes of ceremony at the start. And they went to like an amazing effort as well. It looked beautiful on the snatches that we did see, but it was just really disjointed and frustrating to have to hear like, the, the critical commentary about the Matildas over the top of like Christine Sinclair bursting into tears while she's singing the national anthem. It, it was just, yeah, it was, it was not a, not a good way to start the game. And Tony had flagged in before both games that when the ceremony happened, the Matildas were going to be involved in it. I think when I was doing the maths, there's at least four or five players that have played with Christine yeah. Sinclair, like off the top of my head, like Carpenter, Razzo, Catley, um, Ford all played with her at Portland at some point like so we knew the players were going to be involved and it, it all looked very beautiful and you know like I found Sam we had to sort of play catch up a fair bit with the some of the ceremony things like things like you know the warm-up kits that Canada Canada wore it's um this is a bit of a boot to the lack of thing but I think it's going to turn into into the how good because there were so many nice moments and I found that we had to catch up a lot on Twitter to see everything that happened um so I would have, yeah, I would have liked that to be recognised a bit more. Because let's be honest, if you're tuning in for this game, you, you you are tuning in for that as well. And I think it's important. So many people are, are new to women's football and new to the Matildas and new to what it all means after the World Cup. And history, and Sam, I know this is something you're very passionate about, our history is important as well. And the people and the pioneers, and I thought Steph Catley immediately post-match was very good talking about what, what Christine Sinclair means. Um and yeah, I think it would have been good just even just for educating people who maybe are only recent newcomers to football and obviously didn't see Christine Sinclair in, in her prime to talk about what, what she means and her connection to these players and Sophie Schmidt as well, um, like to give them that little bit of time in the sun. Now, obviously, the football world is giving, but, you know, it was, it's 10, 15 minutes, right? Like maybe could have cut down a little bit on the pregame and um and thrown forward and in, enjoyed the the occasion a bit more um that would have been nice but 
I feel like I'm segueing naturally in how good was everything around Christine Sinclair. Um, I still not sure, like my little nitpicking of I was like, this is not the 12th minute when you're reporting, this is the 13th minute, but I appreciate it was when 12 went up on the clock. Um, things like that. Just it felt like everything was done so well. The pre-game, like, I don't know how Christine Sinclair held it together. Like I know she shed a couple of tears, but I would have been a mess like seeing all these things. Um, as Bev Priestman talked about in the post-match presser, that she said it basically sums up who Christine Sinclair is. That we saw pre-match, everyone was wearing a Sinclair shirt as their warm-up kit, but Christine Sinclair was wearing the Sophie Schmidt um, kit to you know send off her own great teammate. Um, it was interesting. I thought they'd have wanted to play the two of them on the field together, but it was also quite a nice symbolic moment. 12 minutes into the second half, Sinclair makes way for Schmidt, hands over the captain's armband. Um, I thought it was also beautifully done. Um, Canada deserve a lot of credit for the way they played as well. They were fantastic. They've been very good in both games, but I think it was really important for them to send Sink off on a winning note in front of the home crowd. They renamed the place BC Place. I, when I was watching all this, all I was thinking was, she probably hate it, but geez, I hope they can figure out a way to send off a Claire Polkinghorne like this over these yeah. next couple of years at yeah. Suncorp Stadium if they can sort the bloody pitch out. Um, maybe they can erect the statue in like extra time or something, and she'll really hate that. Um, but like, I was just watching it thinking, yeah, this is, they've done this so well. <clears throat> and I know there's been issues between, you know, like the Federation and the Canadian players and all that, but it was just so well done. Like, I think everyone that was involved deserves a, a lot of credit for making it happen. And yeah, it, and you know, that includes the Matildas players as well, who are the ultimate, I thought they showed the ultimate respect, which was something Tony called for pre-game and that they were, you know, very respectful pre-game, post-game and three minutes into the game, Katrina Gray went through Christine Sinclair. So, you know, like, <laughs> the, like it was all handled so, uh, so brilliantly, I thought, by all involved. Yeah, it was beautiful, wasn't Getting it? Getting tackled yeah. by Minnie is actually the highest compliment and praise and respect. <laughs> so I, I thought the exact same thing when I saw it. It made me giggle. Just peak Minnie. Yeah. No, it's it's lovely, isn't it? I'm really glad that this is the way that it ended for Sync because if it wasn't this, it would have been the World Cup. And that was a real downer, wasn't it? It was such a bummer to be bundled out of the group stage, 4-0 loss to the Matildas. Um, without ever really getting going. And that's, you know, I remember standing in the mix zone with you, Marissa, and, and Harrow and, and watching the Canadian players sort of very um, forlornly looking at the ground, walking past all the journalists, not wanting to talk to anybody. And Sinclair, again, in a real testament to her character, uh, she stopped for everybody. And, you know, she was asked really difficult questions and she answered them with such grace and such patience even though you could tell that she was really genuinely devastated because she knew that this was going to be her last World Cup. And, you know, it was, um, it was a real honour to stand there and to, to listen to her and to see her, how professional she was in that moment, um, how much of a leader she was in that moment, particularly surrounded by younger players who were in tears, walking past her, not wanting to, to look anybody in the eyes because they were so embarrassed about what had happened. Um, but Sinclair stood there and she answered questions and she was a real pro about it. So... Yeah, look, it's just she's just an unbelievable human being. Like what she's done in football is one thing. 190 goals in 331 games, is it? You know, the all-time leading international goal scorer, men's or women's, um, which is a stat now that hopefully plenty more people know about because, again, credit to the Aussie commentators. They were banging the Christine Sinclair drum 
all game, pre-game, during the game and after the game as well. Um, and in terms of educating the public around the the influence and the importance of a player like this, that's really, really important is having commentators who are um, educated and, and can speak eloquently about this kind of contribution. But the stuff that she's done off the field as well, I think is is some of the most important. And you now I'm thinking more recently about the, the negotiations with Canada Soccer, fronting up to a government inquiry about support for the women's national teams, um, using her voice and her platform, which... She doesn't do very often, but when she does it, everyone sits up and listens. Um, and I'm thinking as well back to last year when the the Canada team threatened to go on strike um, and, and boycott a, a friendly window because they hadn't come to an agreement with Canada Soccer in terms of support, compensation, pathways, all the real basic things that you know, the Matildas, for example, have negotiated. Um, then they were threatened, uh, Canada Soccer threatened to sue them. And so they had to play that friendly window basically under duress. And I think about that photo of Christine Sinclair wearing the purple um, shirt, you know, which um, which which was really powerful and the sort of the, the look, the really de- desperately sad look on her face when she was lining up for the anthems. Um, yeah, look, she's, she's just been extraordinary. And um, I don't even think with all of the the fanfare, all the ceremony, all the commentary, I don't even think that gets close to really explaining the the impact that she's had or will continue to have um, on, on women's football, particularly in Canada. You know, one of the lovely things that, Marissa, you mentioned it in your piece as well yesterday is that Sinclair is is this kind of inspirational figure that transcends the game almost. You know, she's a, an extraordinary athlete she's a a role model for generations of people who now look at the number 12 jersey with awe you know because she she is the number 12 jersey and I'm I am fully on board with some people calling for that that number to be retired at national team level because I don't think anyone can ever live up to it um but I also really love some of the smaller anecdotes of some of her teammates that have been coming out over the last couple of weeks younger teammates who said you know the first time I came into camp I was so nervous like players born in the 2000s you know who only ever know Canada soccer with Christine Sinclair in it coming into camp for the first time having Sinclair walk up to them and say hi I'm Christine and them going I know (laughs) you know I know who you are you're my you're the reason why I'm here you are the reason why I'm playing football and she's just so humble She's so just chill and patient and calm and and such an incredible leader and role model for these people. What a what a what an amazing contribution to the sport, um, and what a loss we're all going to have when now that she's gone. I love the sentiment of retiring the number twelve, but unfortunately, it's something they'll only be able to do in friendly matches um, because in the Olympics, you got to have an eighteen player squad. You have got to have the numbers one through eighteen, Boo, the World Cup one see. through twenty. 1 through 23. So I'll be interested to see how they handle it. If it gets handed over to a, I don't know if it's a Jesse Fleming or whoever whoever wants it, or if they go, maybe we'll just make it back to the, the goalkeeper kits, which is a lot of teams use 12 as a goalkeeper, um, as one of the goalkeeper kits. It'll be really fascinating to see how they handle that. Um, and if for friendlies, for example, they do retire it and say it's only going to be used in, in major tournaments. Um, but I see a lot of players say this, that you can't really retire a national team jersey. I see players say this. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, even a Christine Sinclair held this view that you just keep in the jersey warm. It represents so much more than the individual um, because it is a national team jersey and it's never something you can you can take for granted. Um, I think when you see things like Sam Kerr at the Olympics wearing number two, 
obviously got changed then Charlie Grant had 20 because it was an extended squad <clears throat> but players having to change their number for things like the Olympics or the World Cup because of the the number limitations um, I think that really makes it ring true that um, as much as someone like a Sinclair their, their impact is permanent your hold over a jersey or in a place in a in a team is not and maybe it just makes it it more beautiful and she can hand it over to to whoever she wants I suppose I'm sure that's probably a conversation that they've been having um yeah it, it would be like you know at some point Sam Carroll hand over that number 20 jersey to to someone else who's coming through and you know like say Caitlin Ford got the number nine after Sarah Walsh had had it before like we see so many of um of these handovers happen Lindsay Horan taking on the number 10 after Carly Lloyd like these these moments happen and um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how they handle it. 12 especially is a like a, a bit of a random number as well to make so iconic, especially as a, you know, as a striker. Um, so it'll be really fascinating to see what they do next. But I've, you, you've got to have faith in that it will go land in the hands of the right player and the right person um, with no expectation that they've got to leave as incredible a legacy as, as Christine Sinclair, of course, because I think it's going to be impossible to match that let alone the goals. I don't know how anyone's ever going to score that many goals again. I want someone to do a compilation of all her goals, like in one video. All one. Well, it depends because when she was, you know, starting her international career, uh, we all know that there may not have been the coverage or the, the yeah, the, the video. Christine, recreate your first four goals. <laughs> Well, I'm looking at the list actually, and in her first 10 international goals, she did the, some in Newcastle, in Campbelltown, in Canberra, in Sydney. I'm like, wow, isn't that great? We were a legend. Christine Sinclair's goal tour. Yeah. I, I don't know why that tickles me. I think it's like when you see something in a movie and you're like, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would love to see, like, that would be. A very, I, I'm sure there's probably rights issues or something, but I don't care. Can someone make it happen, please? Anyway, yeah, and yeah, Christine Sinclair, the howest of goods, the goatiest of goats. What a legend! I literally can't add anything, so I'm not gonna. That's us done for today. That's the Tilly's done for this year. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, 2023, what a year. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good, wasn't bad. Um, we might talk about that later this year, what's left of it, but we might not, so we're not making any promises there. But thank you for tuning in to all of our Tilly's episodes. We will be back literally next week with more A-League Women episodes, so we can't wait to get into that. But as always, we're over on ESPN.com.au and the ESPN app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, all of the usual pod spots. If you like what we do, leave a review and subscribe so you get all of the episodes directly into your feed. If you want to have a chat to us, we're at The Far Post Pod on all social media. But until next time, see ya.